have a routine that sets me up for success, right? Like I wake up, I grab my green smoothie, I take my dogs for a walk, I sit down, I do my um, gratitudes, I do my affirmations, I take my run. Like I have routines that set me up during the week, but I'm not going to lie to you. That does not get done on Saturday and Sunday. And then I pick it back up on Monday, unless it's this week, which was Labor Day and I had a three-day weekend. So I didn't do it yesterday. So I think like we also need to take the pressure off. Like let's create diligence in our life. Let's create the happiness habits that are part of our everyday life. But like, let's not think we have to be perfect at it either for it to work. This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 354 with guest Kim Strobel. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. I am so glad that you are here. I just got finished batching, let's see, one, two, seven podcast interviews for the fall. And I have another one coming up in a few days. This amazing group of women that I have coming on, I swear the universe answers your questions when you <laughs> when you make orders. I wanted someone to talk about ancestral healing. I wanted someone to come and talk about how to heal from relationships when you have been with a narcissist. I wanted to t- talk to somebody about intuition and what that has to do with trauma. And the universe served it up. I am so excited to bring you these episodes coming up over the next handful of months. And today we are talking about happiness. Uh, Kim is our guest today. She's a happiness coach and someone that I got the pleasure of meeting in person. And I, I knew I had to have her on to come and talk to you about all the amazing things she knows about how to be happier because it's 2020. And I guess probably many of us could feel like we could use a little bit more of that. And next week, I have a conversation about shit that matters with unqualified people coming up with the lovely Liz Applegate, who is my lead coach over here at Your Kick-Ass Life. We are talking about some pretty big topics. I feel like they are. We're talking about perimenopause for those of you maybe who have already been through it, maybe those of you who are in it right now, or maybe those of you have something to look forward to as those years come up on you. And she and I are also talking about depression and medication and what that looks like here in 2020. So stay tuned for that next week. And also speaking of Liz, I think she has one opening for private coaching with her. If you want to go over to yourkickasslife.com slash coaching, you can read about coaching with me, fill out an application. And if I'm a great fit, fantastic. Or if Liz is a great fit, we can make that work as well. And so if you're if you're curious about working with me, it's, it's over at that page, yourkickasslife.com slash coaching. I do a couple of different things. You can come on and we can have what I call open sessions. And that's where you bring the topic, you bring the agenda, and we go from there. So maybe you're wanting to set more boundaries in your life. Maybe you're wanting to start your own business. Whatever it is that you want more of in your life, we get there. And then also I do a more curriculum-based coaching that is a little bit longer in many ways that is more intensive. It's about vulnerability and connection, your values. It's about how to stop feeling like shit. If you read my last book, that is the the route that you want to go. And it's also about shame resilience. So again, it's a little bit deeper work and you can read more about that and fill out an application on that page, yourkickasslife.com slash coaching. So let's get into today's episode, shall we? For, for those of you that don't know Kim, let me tell you a little bit about her. Kim Strobel is transforming education and helping teachers bring creativity, innovation, excitement, and achievement back into the classroom. She's an education consultant, well-versed in best practice strategies, but she's also a teacher, so she knows what it takes to implement real change. That's why her workshops and other teacher training opportunities focus on reinvigorating teachers' purpose and passion, empowering them to step back into their classroom with confidence and courage. So without further ado, here is Kim. Kim, thanks for joining us today. Oh, I'm happy to be here, Andrea. Thanks for having me. 
I had so much fun on your show and getting to meet you in person. I've been looking forward to this conversation because Lord knows right now, I think a lot of us could use happiness and a happiness coach, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's my biggest um, hope is like when all this is over, every person is going to need a happiness coach or every business is going to need a happiness coach. <laughs> 100%. Well, like let, let's kind of shift gears away from that and start from the beginning because you know, one of the things I love is when people who are in this industry, in the health and wellness, personal development industry, also are really transparent about their lives. And they talk about the reality of hard things because on the surface, it can look like we have all of our stuff together. We have all these tools. We have all this training. Surely our life is so much better than everybody else's, but you are really open about your history and struggle with mental illness. So can you tell us about that? And and also not only your history, but what does that look like now for you? Yeah. Well, you know, when I, you know, it's kind of interesting, right? So I step onto a stage with thousands of people in the crowd. They introduce me as, you know, a happiness coach. And from the get-go, I'm like, look, I am not sunshine, sprinkles, and glittery unicorns. My happiness coaching is actually born out of my own trauma and my own darkness and my own suffering. And so to back this story up, I I was always kind of the anxious little girl. I mean, obviously, when you look at me or you hear me, I talk fast, I move fast. Um, And so I always had like these little issues kind of running in the background. I mean, I functioned extremely well. I played sports. I had friends, but there was always this anxiety stuff going on in the background. And, you know, it just developed into different things throughout the years. Maybe in my middle school, it's like if my dad wasn't home by 6 p.m., I was in the bathroom throwing up because I was convinced he had died in a car accident. Or, um, yeah, you know, when I was in fifth grade, I didn't want to go to Disney World with my family because I was afraid my brothers would get lost. Like there was this underlying theme. And then when I was a sophomore in high school, I started having the most terrorizing, fear-filled attacks out of nowhere. I would be sitting in class or walking down the hallway and all of a sudden, um, like my entire body would begin to shake and the walls would be coming in and out. I would feel like I was going to lose consciousness. I felt confused. I remember like, my name's Kim Sablehouse, but it doesn't really make sense to me. Like, I don't really, you know, and so there was just like all of this distortion and confusion Um, And I would immediately like want to flee the classroom or go to the nurse's office or get help. And what happened, Andrea, is that actually began this entire like, you know, eight year extreme darkness, extreme suffering battle with what we now know is panic disorder. Mm -hmm. And so what that looked like for me and the best way that I can describe this to others is if I were to put you on a train track and tell you that a train is coming at you at 300 miles per hour and you're not allowed to move from the train track, but that train will stop one inch before it hits you. So you're not in any danger. You are perfectly safe but this train is going to be barreling at you and I promise you it will stop. And so for the normal human being, you can imagine, you would feel like your heart would be racing. You'd be sweating. Your entire body would be trembling. You would think you were going to die. The problem with somebody like me is there is no train. And so there's no one holding a knife to my neck. There's no one getting ready to shoot me. There's no, I'm not almost in a car accident. And so the problem becomes tenfold because my brain can't even attach a logical reason mm-hmm. for why I feel the way I do, which means I think I'm crazy. Right. And this was, I think you're around my age. So when you were in high school, was that early nineties? Yeah. It was like 1990 all the way till like, I mean, extreme suffering all the way to like 98, 99. Which then mental illness was still pretty taboo and nobody really talked about it. And there was still a lot of shame around. I'm not saying that, you know, we've come massively far, but I definitely think it's different now. 
It is. And, you know, I was even misdiagnosed. It was like, oh, she has low blood sugar. Oh, we think she has some kind of seizure disorder. Like I was taken to a neurologist. I was taken to all of these doctors and not one time was the word anxiety disorder brought up. And so what happened was I... I no longer felt safe anywhere. I had these panic attacks day in, day out, all throughout the day. So I became agoraphobic. I struggled to leave my house. I struggled to walk to my mailbox. I struggled to get in my car and drive five minutes. And Lord help me, please don't ask me to go into Walmart because like, you know, I didn't know when one of these attacks would come and I didn't feel capable of caring for myself. And I also didn't know what was wrong with me. I just knew like, oh, there's 22-year-old Kim who can't even function as well as the two-year-olds at Walmart who can gladly go around the aisle away from their mommy. But if Kim goes to Walmart, her husband has to be there. And then he has to be right next to her in her sight at all times in case she feels funny. So, you know, you know this, Andrea, but like, I felt worthless. Mm-hmm. I mean. I felt like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know why I can't function like a normal adult. I hate myself. Um, And for me, I honestly had, I mean, I think a pivoting point for me was around 1996, 97. And my husband at the time had left for work. And that always caused extreme anxiety because I would be by myself for about 20 minutes before I needed to get myself in my car and try to drive to work. And I don't know if you remember this, but like in the mid nineties, the, the decor was like forest green and burgundy. Do you remember oh, that? hundred percent. Yep. I was in a wedding then and we had burgundy dresses, yeah, right? Yeah. dresses. They were glorious. So I started to have these feelings and normally I would be calling my husband at work and having him talk me down, but I went into my bathroom and I still, to this day, I, I laid on in the fetal position on the forest green bath mat rug and I honestly did plead with God. And I just said, look, I, I don't know if it's courage or what. I just, I don't have the courage to take my life, but I need you to take my life. I, every half hour of every damn day feels like extreme suffering to me and I can't do it anymore. Yeah. And when I look it back and I revisit, which it does make me emotional because I think like, what a suffering that girl had endured for years. And I don't, I don't know if it was a feeling. I don't know if it was a voice. I don't know if it was intuition, but there was like something that said, get up off that floor and you have to take control of your life because you are made for more. This is not over for you. And so it's like shortly after that, I went to my general practitioner who luckily had been studying about anxiety disorders. And he said, Kim, you have something called panic disorder. This is how the chemicals in your brain are interacting. Not only that, but your thought processes have become habitual now to where you no longer feel safe. Um, And so he put me on Zoloft. And then I also went to cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, where I had to do things like, okay, Kim, your homework this week is you're not just going to drive to Walmart, but you're going to walk in and go to the back of the store and touch the back wall. And then you can leave. Exposure therapy. Yeah. And honestly, Andrea, if you would have said, or I can cut your two arms off, it felt that damn scary that I would have been like- You would have considered, yeah, yeah. <laughs> reputation. Take the arms, you know. Oh, and so oh I began, began this like intense. And so that's what really threw me into the self-help field because I'm like doing cognitive behavioral therapy. I have Zoloft, which is making me a thousand times. Like it was a miracle for me. Saved your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I all of a sudden get lit up by this self-help world. And I'm like, okay, it's time to realign Kim because like who the fiery independent Kim on the inside, she's there but she has this weird condition that doesn't allow her to be who she is. So how can I do the own work on myself? And that's what I've done for 20 years. Um, I've read everything I can get my hands on. I've taken courses and programs and all of that. Um, But let me tell you this, Andrea, in fall of 2018, 
So here I am, right? I'm this motivational speaker. I travel the country. I get on planes. I get on stages. I mean, right? The girl who couldn't walk to her mailbox now stands on a stage with thousands of people. And then in the fall of 2018, when I launched my happiness coaching business and was creating my first ever program, I had the worst relapse and panic attack in 25 years. Oh no. That's when I met you. Yeah. Fall of 2018. Yep. Yeah. It's actually right after, you know, I joined a program and started trying mm-hmm. to launch my other business. And um, I, it was terrible. And it took me all the way back to where I was um, scared to leave my house, scared for my husband to leave the house. I was nervous to drive five minutes down to the health club. Um, it actually took me all the way back. Now, here's what's different. There's a set of skills that Kim Strobel has now that she did not have then. So I applied all of those and worked myself out of it. And it took a good six months and 12 months, and I'm still kind of working on myself. But I did, like, I, I don't have this shit figured out, okay? Like, yeah. <laughs> this is life, you know? <laughs> and brain chemistry to boot, yeah. Yeah, and so... When I look back at that relapse, you know, I, I'm like, what was the meaning of that? Because I was pissed at God. I was like, look, hey, not only did mm-hmm. I come out of the darkness, but I, lo- I use this stuff to like help other people. I use the mess of my life to help other people. Why would you send me back to all of this again? Um, but my realization with that is that I have always despised and hated that part of Kim Strobel, the weak, what feels like the weak, vulnerable girl who still has struggles. And my way of dealing with her is my ambition and my drive and my overachieving and my knock it out of the ball part. Because the more I can do that, then I think I keep her in her place. And what I've come to realize after relapsing this last time is that she actually deserves to take space up in my life. So now when I walk on the stage in my great dress and my great heels and my makeup and my hair, I say to myself, yeah, the badass Kim Strobel, she's walking onto the stage, but she is also taking with her the girl who still struggles. And I'm not going to be afraid to let her be seen because she's a big part of my story. So it's like really learning to love and accept that part of Kim too. Like I can honor both of them. Wow. I, you know, it's funny, the more I talk to you, the more I, I realize how many parallels we have in our life. And I struggled with panic disorder as well in the early 2000s. Well, it was before that too, but my diagnosis finally came in 2002, I think it was. And I had a lot of those same feelings, you know, when I really got into personal development and would write about my struggles before, and I would, I would have shame around who I used to be and talk about talk about that part of me sort of in the third person as if, you know, this was almost as if it was separate Yeah, because I wanted it to be separate. I wanted to separate myself from the addict, the, the girl with the disordered behaviors who had poor, unhealthy coping mechanisms, who was so desperate for love. And, um, it was, it made me so uncomfortable to look at those parts of myself. And it wasn't until actually in 2014, when I had my training, um, with Brene Brown's method. And she talks about orphaning those parts of our story. And I had done a little bit of like, you know, kind of self-forgiveness work before that, but that really brought it home of, of doing the work of, you know, what some therapists call, you know, family, family, family systems and that kind of therapy where you look at your shadow side and your darkness. And because we all have it. And, and just all that to say, same, I've had to do the same work and it it continues for me. I don't know about you, but COVID has been humbling. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've gotten my ass handed to me the last six months. (laughs) Yeah. Same here, you know? And it's like, I do think no matter like what, like the people who are listening, they've all struggled. Like it might not be panic disorder, but everybody has had like some really bad challenges and adversities and darkness and struggles. And what we automatically do is we don't extend any grace to ourselves, you know? And so like one of the affirmations that I now write every single day is 
I honor my fierceness, but I also love and accept my vulnerabilities. You know, because again, that's who I am. That is who I am. I am the girl who has done really courageous things in her life, but I am also the girl who just, sometimes I'm a shit show, Andrea. Mm -hmm. It's just how it is. And it all matters. In all matters. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I have learned that putting a voice to my story is really powerful. It's funny. I, I was like in my third year of keynoting and I was driving to an event and I was like, okay, they've asked for the science of happiness. And I've only given that talk at that time. I'd only given it a couple of times. And I had told my story of panic, but for some reason I was second guessing myself. I was like, I don't know. Am I supposed to tell this story? And I don't know if it's a Danny Gokey song. It was some song. And anyways, the refrain was, let them see you. Mm -hmm. And I thought, and that's what I have found is that actually when I can put a, a voice to my struggle, it actually frees so many other people. Like they come up to me and they are like, Kim, I see you on the stage. I think, my goodness, here's this girl in the hot pink dress who like has all this energy and this beautiful family and travels around the country. And then within 10 minutes, you back the story back up. And now I'm like, wow, she doesn't always have it all together. And I'm not a total failure compared to her, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important. that's what brought you to happiness work. It is. It's and what I've studied for 20 years. For 20 years. So you, I know that you say that the conventional formula for happiness is wrong. So can you speak about that? Yeah. And I also want to be really clear too, because I also think we have like a culture of positivity right now that is wrong. And what I mean by that is we're always telling people like, just be positive. Now listen. Oh, toxic positivity. Yes. Yes, it, has a, it has a name. <laughs> Love that term, toxic positivity. Oh, you had, yes. I had not heard of that. Love it. You're welcome. Yeah, Google it. There's a oh lot my of gosh. that have yeah. been written within the last couple of years around it. And it's it's exactly, I know exactly where this is going. I it, love talking about this. So yeah, because ahead. like we we tell people to shut their feelings. Like, like the other day, I was like sad and angry and pissed. And my mom looked at me and she, and I love my mom. She's super nurturing, but she's like, now Kim, you're a happiness coach. And I thought, eh. Mary Jo, I'm a human being who needs to process all of my emotions. And so we have to quit telling people to just shift to positive and to turn off those negative feelings because that actually makes it worse. Like you're allowed to feel your negativity. You're allowed to feel your anger. You're allowed to feel all of those feelings. Yes, we want you to pivot out of that quicker. We don't want you laying in the gutter for too long, but like you're allowed to feel it and it really ticks me off when people Mm -hmm. are trying to like, they tell you not to feel how you do. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I grew up that way too. And, um, I think our parents' generation, and I'm going to make a generalization here, but our parents' generation grew up with, without vulnerability at all. Like it was not accepted. It was, um, you just sweep all your feelings under the rug and they will go away. Let's bury them and hope that they die you know, bury them alive. And my mom does the same thing to me. And I've had to learn that I just don't share certain things with her or I have to preface it and tell her what I need because she will put a silver lining on it. And she means, well, it's just, there are some people who don't have the, they don't have the experience in being with somebody else's heavy feelings. I don't even like to call them negative feelings. I call them heavy or challenging. And it's, it's, very uncomfortable. I used to be the same way. I always say I couldn't be with my own feelings, so I sure as shit can't be with yours. Like, <laughs> yes, you keep those over there because well, I don't even want my own. You know, we do the same thing with that term that Brene Brown uses, comparative suffering. Like it's the same thing. We rank it. Yeah, mm-hmm. we rank it. So I'm not allowed to feel bad about this because somebody else has it worse than me. And so, yeah, we, that's like another ho show in itself, but getting, getting back to the conventional happiest formula. So I follow Sean Aker and Martin Seligman. So, you know, Sean um, taught the number one class at Harvard university, positive psychologies, written several books. um, And then Martin Seligman out of the university of Pennsylvania. And then a 
handful of others as well. But basically, the formula that we've all been taught is, you know, here's what you do. Like, go to school and get good grades and then go to college. And hopefully, you you choose a degree where you make a lot of money and you get that degree and you land the job and you climb your way up the ladder and you make more money and you finally get the house that you've always wanted and the car that you've always wanted and the 2.5 kids and like, when you can yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> right. and when you can get all of those things then and only then have you arrived at happiness mm-hmm. and let's be honest we all play that game even even i who i know the research and i am still like well if i could just get the lake house i just think i'd be a lot happier <laughs> you know like we all play that game But what we know from the last 10 to 15 years of research is that the formula is actually backwards and what needs to come to the forefront is our well-being and our happiness levels. So when we put our happiness and well-being levels at the forefront, the research is really strong that it changes every single business, education, um, and organizational outcome. It changes also every other outcome in your life from abundance, creativity, the ability to problem solve, your energy and motivation levels. But We haven't always done that because happiness is like this frivolous thing, yet we actually live in a day and time where everybody's like, "Uh, I got a problem. I'm tired of living the same day, 365 days a year. I don't feel happy. I don't feel fulfilled. I don't wake up excited to live my life on most days, um, and I'm settling for good enough. And so what we know now is that actually putting your happiness and your well-being at the forefront is of utmost importance. And when you can do that, especially as a woman, especially as a mama, when you can do that, it really does change the outcome of so many other things. And so... So when you talk about people's well-being, um, is that sort of like, you know, because I wanted to ask you a question about retraining your brain yeah. to feel happy, you know, yeah. even like, I think I think 2020 is a perfect... <laughs> experiment, if you will, or example of, of how we can do this. So can you speak to that? Yep. So here's what we know about the happiness research. We know that all of us have what's called a set baseline happiness level. So maybe my set baseline level is here, Andrea, or my default is here, and maybe yours is a little bit higher. So what this, this means- is, This is like what you're born with, right? Yeah. In your DNA? Well, okay, this sort is of. Sonia, oh. What's her name? Sonia Le- Lubermiski. Yep. Lubermiski. Lubermiski. Yeah, her yeah. research. Yep. And so basically what happens is we have this genetic, well, it's not all genetic. So we have this default. And so you and I go out and we go shopping and we get a new Kate Spade purse or we get a new job or we land a new client or whatever it is. And our happiness level does go up for a period of time. But what we know is it always goes back to the default. Might take two Mm -hmm. hours, might take two days, it might take two months. It will go up and it will almost always go right back to the default. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The research is really strong that the same is true for when our happiness levels dip. So we can actually, as human beings, as hard as this is to wrap our brains around, we can endure really terrible things. We can endure loss, tragedy, illness, a divorce, um, any number of really catastrophic things in our life. And the brain does have this kind of uncanny ability that after a period of time, it will, for most people, return to default. Now, I'm going to tell you I struggle with that research because there are certain things in my life that I'm like, okay, but if this happened here, I'm just going to tell you I could never be, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I could never be happy again yet. Mm -hmm. So you rehearse like different things in your life that might happen? Like, oh, if this happened, Mm -hmm. you can't tell me I would ever be able to find happiness again. Or if this happened, but yet if you and I look around, don't you know people who have endured really terrible things, atrocities, and that they have somehow gone on to live a very fulfilling, joy-filled life? So we have proof of this. We have proof that we will return back to default. Now, what's interesting about this is if you think of your happiness as a pie chart, because I'm sure everybody who's listening is like, okay, but where's this default come from, Kim? Right. And how do I find out what mine is? And how do I find out what mine is? Yeah. Because then I need to compare it to where yours is, Andrea, so I can see how I feel about myself. (laughs) 
Um, If you think of happiness as a pie chart, what we know is that 50% of a person's long-term happiness is genetic, which means it comes from your mom or your dad or a mixture of both. And when I tell people this many times, they like hang their heads and think, I'm so screwed. There's a genetic disposition to it. Some of us are born into this world and we just have this kind of lighthearted ability to really see through the lens of positivity and then others of us have to work at it. So like when I look at my own family, my dad, I would say is genetically wired towards happiness. My mom, she can't she she can't help that her brain just constantly and consistently focuses on and she doesn't even mean to do it, but it, it just sees everything that's wrong. So like mm-hmm. there's this kind of genetic tendency to it. It's 50%. Now I find this interesting. 10% and only 10% of your long-term happiness comes from your external circumstances. Yeah. So what do I mean by that? I mean COVID, believe it or not, is an external mm-hmm. circumstance. Yeah. What kind of home you live in, what kind of car you drive, what kind of money you make, you You need Mm -hmm. to lose 20 pounds or 50 pounds. If you're married, single, divorced, whatever it is, it only accumulates, it only accounts for about 10%. But the issue is we play the if-when game with happiness and we say, well, if I could just make this much money, then I'd be happy. If we could just buy the 5,000 square foot home then I, if I could just find a partner, then I'd be happy. And what happens is what that really forces us to do is to have to take responsibility for our life because mm-hmm. we all let it eat up way more than 10% of the pie. You know, we do. And yeah, let's be honest. I've been guilty of that too. Right. There's going to be times when it does. Like if you have a spouse who all of a sudden left you and you are devastated, of course, it's going to eat up more than 10% of the pie. The issue is if five years later, it's still eating up more of the pie, that's on you, Mm -hmm. right? So understanding that we are all working, thinking these are the things that are going to make me happier, get rid of the wrinkles, you know, lose the weight, find the right partner, get it. But what we know from the research is that's not really where it counts so much. Um, And I I do have to throw this in because I think it's hilarious, but I always kind of ask the crowd, I'm like, so how many of you are that are listening? How many of you are parents? Raise your hand. And I'm like, just so you know, the happiness research says that when you become a mom or a dad, you become a little less happy for the rest of your life. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. I've heard that before. And it, but it's true. You know why? Hell, like yeah. we have way more joy maybe and meaning in our life, but you're stressed the hell out forever when you have kids. I was just telling one of my friends, you know, there's that saying in, in parenthood that says you're only as happy as your saddest child. Mm. And I am, I was telling one of my friends, like I am living that right now. Um, and I also read a study that said that marriages um, parents that, you know, people that have children who are married, they express the lowest time of their marriage is when their children are school age, when they're yep. small. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, look, I mean, I'm 46 years old. And when I leave to travel, my mom is so loving that, but she's like, let me know, honey, when you land in the airport, let me know, honey, when you get home, like I'm 46 and my mama still worries about me. No, That's about just parenting. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. just hard, you know? So like the, the <laughs> level of stress kind of takes away a little bit of that um, joy, I guess, or the, you know, kind of the well-being, so to speak. Well, let's talk about that because that leaves another 40% that the research says that we are in charge of more. Yeah, that's the you part that's fired me up. Kind of pessimistic. We can retrain our brains to be more optimistic and we have to work at it a little bit more. Yep. So tell us, talk to us about this quote unquote well-being. Okay. So that does leave 40% of the pie left. So regardless of our genetics, regardless of our external circumstances, we all have the ability to increase our happiness levels by up to 40%. And that 40% is our actions, thoughts, and behaviors. Okay. Now I can spend an entire day giving you like, Hey, here's the top five happiness habits that are going to improve your life. But I want to give your audience one of the top five, Mm -hmm. one of the ways they can increase their baseline, their long-term happiness levels 
And I know you've heard it a million times. I think you've even had people talk about it on your podcast, but it's this very simple act of gratitude. Mm-hmm. It's a gratitude practice. And so what we know is that the average human being has about 70,000 thoughts in a day's time. Um, and if you're super stressed, you're having about 100,000. So I don't know. <laughs> Are you up I've to the hundreds, Andrea? varies between genders and between people. And I, I always say like my audience they're way up on the high scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we have those brains, right? We have those brains that just go at it. So what's interesting though, is that for the average human being, 80% of the thoughts that you have in a day's time are negative. If you're an average person, Mm -hmm. 80% of your thoughts are negative, which means 56,000 negative thoughts are floating through your brain daily. And the reason this happens is, We all have heard probably about the reptilian part of the brain. So eons and eons ago, we had um, the we have the reptilian part of the brain, which was the part of the brain that in in caveman times it protected us. It was the part of the brain that learned to scan its environment for negative in order to keep us safe. Are there people coming to murder us? Is is there a storm that's going to wipe out the whole tribe? Are we going to have enough food? Are we going to have shelter? And so our brain that that part of our brain functioned as a safety mechanism. But the thing is, it's 2020 and we still have the reptilian brain. It is still part of our physiological, biological part. So it's trained to scan for negative. So I I think it's important for people to know this because this is the part of the brain that's constantly doing this. Okay. Now, what's even more interesting, I think, is of those 80% of thoughts that are negative each day, 95% of those are the exact same negative thoughts you had the day before, mm-hmm. right? So if we take everybody back to like the first 30 seconds that they woke up this morning, they like their alarm went off and they were like, crap, I didn't get enough sleep. And oh God, I got to go to work today. Oh, they get out of bed and they're like, my back hurts. And they're like, walk into the bathroom and they're like, oh my God. Scarcity, scarcity, scarcity. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I look in the mirror, like if you're me, I look in the mirror, I'm like, are you kidding me? A fever blister, right? Um, <laughs> and so- So how do we, so what I want to teach you all is that actually gratitude is one of the top five ways, happiness habits that we can use to actually retrain the brain towards positive. And so what we have is we have all these like neural feedback loops that travel in our brain. It's like a thousand different roads, right? And we travel the same roads day after day. You know, one that women travel all of the time is I don't like my body. I hate my body. And they travel that road over and over. And so whatever roads in your brain you travel the most often, those have the deepest grooves. And so what we know is that if we can practice gratitude and we can actually write down, and the, the research says you do need to write it, so write down three different things that you are thankful for every day for 21 days. And what we know is that after 21 days of doing that, you actually create a new neural feedback loop in your brain, which means you are going throughout your day and your brain is automatically starting to see a lot that is right versus everything that is wrong. And Mm -hmm. it's like a two-minute practice. I promise you it is a game changer. Yeah. And I want to echo that. Like I can bring testimony all day about this because I learned about this in coach training and I was floored. Like, I'm like, are you telling me that all these negative thoughts that I have, I don't have to believe them and that they're not necessarily my truth. And I was, I was absolutely amazed. And, and that is what I have done. And I always tell people, it's not that I don't still have negative self-talk and think that I'm not good enough. And I'm terribly worried that this, you know, people are going to hate this book and I'm going to not know what I'm talking about. Imposter complex, all of those things. I do have that. The difference is, is that I don't stay there for very long. I recognize it very quickly for what it is and I'm able to course correct. So I don't use positive affirmations. I don't go in the mirror and tell myself, you know, that I'm, this is going to be the best book that's ever been written and I'm going to, you know, win a Nobel peace prize for it. I just, use neutral. I mean, it depends on how much time I have. Like (laughs) sometimes I'm just like, Oh, that just happened. And, and, or if it's really bad then I text a friend or, you know, tell somebody about it, it it really depends on what's going on. But I wanted to just 
just echo and applaud all of that because I'm a science nerd myself. I love research. And yes, it, it might sound cliche, but it's cliche for a reason because it works. Like gratitude works. And I always tell people too, like if it if it becomes kind of old hat, to, are you, if you're writing down the same things every day, then then switch it up a little bit. You know, my therapist was just talking to me a couple of weeks ago about this, and she's like, "How much do you actually feel into your gratitude lately, mm-hmm. or are you just phoning it in?" Yes. And so it's it's just about sort of putting a new coat on, if you will, uh, of your gratitude practice. And I try to do it too every time I see eleven eleven, or every time I see a cardinal. Like I, I pause and close my eyes, even if it's just for two seconds, and really take a deep breath and breathe in what it feels like to have two healthy children yeah. who are not sick, to have a roof over our head right now. Like these really simple things, not just ticking them off my fingers, but what does it really feel like? I, I love that. And I think um, we have like a gratitude tracker and I'm happy to send it to your audience. But basically what it is, it's like a little prompt thing that sh- gives them some ways to start looking at gratitude. And then it actually gives them the tracker so that for 21 days, they can actually write their three things down. So I'm happy to send that to you if you think that would be beneficial so that it will get yeah, them Yeah, we can started. put it in the show notes. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, but these don't have to be profound things, right? Like I'm just excited there's roses blooming. I'm excited that my dog, George, is lying on the floor next to me right now, you know, and I'm drinking a McDonald's Diet Coke. Like, it mm-hmm. doesn't have to be these really profound things, but it really is a game changer. And I want to say this too, Andrew, because sometimes I think this feels like another thing I'm supposed to do. And so, and I personally, I have a 10 gratitude practice. Every day, for the most part, I write down 10 things. It's just what I do. The research says you just need three. But I'm also going to say this, Andrea, that doesn't happen on Saturdays and Sundays. I don't know why. It's I have a new route. I have a different routine on the weekend. And so like, I don't have to do this 365 days a year. So sometimes I feel like there's pressure, like, oh my gosh, this is one more thing. I have the perfect morning routine. Yeah. 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 And I do Monday through Friday. Like I have a routine that sets me up for success, right? Like I wake up, I grab my green smoothie. I take my dogs for a walk. I sit down. I do my um, gratitudes. I do my affirmations. I take my run. Like I have routines that set me up during the week, but I'm not going to lie to you. That does not get done on Saturday and Sunday. And then I pick it back up on Monday, unless it's this week, which was Labor Day. And I had a three-day weekend. So I didn't do it yesterday. So I think like we also need to take the pressure off. Like let's create diligence in our life. Let's create the happiness habits that are part of our everyday life. But like, let's not think we have to be perfect at it either for it to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that you also added that. Well, I want to, we need to wrap up, but I want to ask you one more question. And you talk about the arena of bigness. Mm-hmm. So how can one, I mean, this is kind of a, speaking of bigness, this is kind of a big question because I'm asking you about smallness. So you might want to define what you, what you think that that is, but how can somebody who feels like they're living a small life step out of that and into what you call the arena of bigness? Ooh, I think that might be the title of the book I'm going to write, Andrea, by the <gasps> way. Oh, that makes me so happy. (laughs) It's really, so like, I think bigness can mean all kinds of things. It can mean, so I've played small many times in my life. And actually this could be a whole different episode because like, there are so many times I stayed in my corner and I stayed quiet or I didn't let my real self be seen because I had been slapped down, whether it be from you know, high school girls who like one literally slapped me and made me feel dumb in front of the other girls to when I became an adult and I became a school teacher and people didn't want me doing anything progressive. And so like what I did for almost all of my life is I dimmed my light. I dimmed my light so that I could make the people around me feel better. And I had two major incidents where I finally walked out of the room and told myself, never, ever am I going to do that again. And so to me, The arena of bigness can be something like having a difficult conversation with your spouse and saying, I need more from you when it comes to these household chores. But it can be something as big as going after your dream or writing that best-selling book that you want to write. It can be having the courage to drive to Walmart. To me, that was bigness. I mean, who else who lives in complete fear and has to, like, that is bigness. That is me saying, hey, I see you fear and I'm going to feel you and I'm going to do it anyway. And so what I really want women to do is to like, step into their bigness, to honor the parts of themselves that have had the struggle 
but continue to like grow and develop their wings and continue to say, actually, I'm worth it. And I'm going to show you and I'm going to show myself that I am. So I'm going to step into the arena of bigness and I'm going to do really hard things in my life because that's who I want to be. Mm-hmm. Amen. That's a lot of actually what my book is about, but it has a different, not a different angle, an additional angle to it. Really? Did I tell you about that? No. So I am a believer now, you know, I've written two self-help books. I've been doing this for, for a hot minute also known as a decade. And <laughs> I'm obsessed with the root of the problem. Like, and I think you are too. Like, why do we do these behaviors? You know, tell, show me the happiness research. This is, I think why, not I think, but I know that I went to get, and I never would have guessed I would have gotten certified in shame work. I talked about the inner critic so much and then realized like, there's more to this negative self-talk than just beating ourselves up. Like, what is the root of the problem? And it, I found out it was shame. And so having done this work for so long and and talking to women about their bigness and why do we play small? Why is it so hard for us to step into the light and shine and, and have visibility? And, and a lot of it, I think, has to do with patriarchy. You know, ah. we've been brought up in a culture that tells us to be quiet, to be nice, to be polite, to be um, accommodating, and to be assertive or have the hard conversation or speak up or to just give an opinion, I think is an act of rebellion for many women who have not. And, and it's, it's a minority of women who were brought up in homes where they were praised and encouraged to step into their bigness. And even if they were, when you go out into the real world, <laughs> you are slapped down like you were talking about. Yeah. So for me, you know, I couldn't write another book without addressing this and also addressing our own internalized sexism and misogyny that we have, you know, that is, you know, you talk about shadow side, we were talking about earlier in this conversation, like that is something that I have had to reckon with is my own internal sexism and misogyny and have a lot of grace for myself and for other women. You know, you hear so much like, why are, why are so many women putting down other women? And I'm like, (laughs) that's not our fault. Like we were taught to do that. Yeah. And that's like, I have had a huge, like, that's part of my, like playing smalls. Like uh, women have really struggled with, like, I really trigger women, a certain kind of woman. And like at the school that I was working at, I won't get into the whole story, but like, I'm a runner, Andrea. I run 35 miles a week. Like talk about kick-ass. I have some kick-ass legs. If you've run 35 miles a week because you're super high strung like I am and you eat Hostess cupcakes every night and that's why you you run, you know. But um, so I actually had a principal come to me and she's a sweet person. And she was like, Kim, I just can't take it anymore. Like the women are constantly talking about your legs. And even though you wear your skirts two inches below the knee because you're so scared of these women who do talk about your legs... I need you to start wearing pants. I need you to not wear skirts or dresses because the women in this building can't handle it. And Andrea, I did it. I freaking did it because Mm. I was so tired of the backlash. And like, I just followed the principal's rules, which was Kim, just wear pants. And like, I walked out of that office, I felt sick, but it was like another time where I had conformed and said, I can't be who I am because I make other people uncomfortable, even though this is a ridiculous reason, I just don't want to feel all this crap from these women anymore. So oh, I'm going to do it. It's, you know, I'm also obsessed with what is, I've mentioned it in another podcast episode, it's called the patriarch, patriarchal bargain. And I don't talk about it a lot in the book because it's not a feminist theory book, but I, I, I am obsessed with it, but just how much we do things like that in order to have some semblance of control, to have some semblance of power, to conform, to not have any confrontations, to, you know, our, our proximity to, to men and to whiteness. Like there's so many reasons that we do it. Like the Kardashians are a perfect example of that. You know, they have made a fortune making a bargain with the patriarchy. You know, it's like, it's this kind of, um, what is it called? It's like, it's like a double binary, like damned if you do and damned if you don't. Yes. And so which path do we choose? the one that's going to give us success, you know, and safety and fighting. It just, it's complicated. It is complicated, (laughs) but there's like, we have a lot to say about this topic, which I think is why these books are going to be really important for women because, you know, we 
have a lot to say because of our own experiences. And it's so funny. I'm kind of inwardly laughing because my, I met with my therapist this morning and I love him. I've had him for 20 years and he's like, Kim, I just, I think that once you started to work for yourself, once you launched your own business, it's almost like the doors blew wide open. And I'm like, you damn straight it is because I'm my own boss. So I've got to wear the dress and I'm going to show my damn skirt. Yeah. I'm like, you know what I mean? Like, isn't that true though? Like once I was able to honor who I really was, it's almost like success and fulfillment and happiness, not all the time, but it found me because it's like, I finally listened to my inner soul. And I think that's the work for all women is let's quit selling our soul for safety and comfort. Mm-hmm. And I think commonly, not for everyone, I, I've seen younger and younger women coming to those, you know, what you just talked about, but I think there's something about entering your forties yeah. and it's, it, you just kind of run out of fucks, you know, and like <laughs> they really start to dwindle and not that, I mean, I still have pr- far too many probably, but for me, it just became one of these things that like, I'm like, and also for the sake of complete transparency, there's a part of me that's afraid to write this book because it is a bit of a departure from, from just talking about personal development. But I, I'm so fucking tired of yelling girl power and not talking about the elephant in the room Mm -hmm. that is the root of the problem. Like we can't not talk about it anymore, especially now with what's happening with so much civil unrest and Anyway, I get all fired up about it. Women need you. Women need you to back this story back out so that we can, at a a very deep level, understand why we do what we do. I mean, I think that's really important work, Andrea, for you to put out there. It is time for us to go that deep and understand where this bullshit comes from and recognize it, not just in others, but like in ourselves so that we as women can do better. Yeah. And we can have the conversations with other women and other, other men in our life and all people. Yes. So anyway, you're going to have to come back on so we can talk about this more. And I've, <laughs> I've loved having you. Thank you so much. Where can people go to find out more about you? Um, okay. So they can go to, I have a private Facebook group called She Finds Joy. How uh, fun. And that's the name of my podcast too. So they okay, can so go there and we'll put, that in the, we'll put both those links in the show notes to your, your Facebook group and your, yep. and your show. Sounds great. Which I have been a guest on. You have. I know. I loved <laughs> it. Good and it was the same thing. We were like fighting for the hour. We were like, we need more time. We're not done with this conversation. I know. Thank you so much for being here. I, I love talking to you. Every time I talk to you, I just enjoy you so much and everything that you have to share. Thank you so much. And everyone out there, thank you for listening. You know how grateful I am for your time. I know how precious it is. Thank you for spending it with me and my guests. And until next time, everyone, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.